Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, politics, and science. Today's episode is How Will the Ukraine War End? Our guest is Stephen Biddle, who is a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University. Stephen previously worked for General Petraeus in Iraq and General McChrystal in Afghanistan. What Happens Next has an internship program for young adults. Interns suggest topics for the podcast, evaluate books written by potential speakers, and help in the editing process. Today, you'll hear from one of our star interns, Ryan Claffey, who is currently a graduate student in international relations at Columbia. One of his professors is our guest speaker, Stephen Biddle. I've asked Ryan to arrange today's podcast and take the lead in the interview. What I want to learn on today's podcast from Stephen is what is the current state of the war in Ukraine? Will Ukraine lead a counteroffensive in the spring when the weather improves? And if so, where? Will the war end in a stalemate? Will the battlefield be extended into mainland Russia? Will additional weapons from the West be a game changer? And what needs to happen for the fighting to stop? There is much to cover, so buckle up. I make this podcast to learn an Alfred free of charge. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe from our website for weekly emails so that you can continue to enjoy this content. Stephen, can you please begin your six-minute opening remarks, and could you please give us an overview of the war, especially how we got to the current state of military conflict? Coercive diplomacy failed to yield a peaceful resolution of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, leading to an invasion. The Russians' expectation when they launched the invasion was that Ukraine wouldn't fight, and therefore they configured their military in what was close to an administrative march to undefended objectives rather than an expectation they're going to fight their way in. That produced failure militarily on the ground. And the war since then has been the two sides mobilized and prepared for a longer war. The initial Russian campaign ended in failure to capture the capital of Kiev. The Ukrainian counteroffensive rolled back substantial initial Russian gains. That then led to a period of stalemate in the summer in which Russian reorientation away from Kiev and Kherson and toward the Donbass produced offensives that failed. That then led in the fall to Ukrainian counteroffensives that succeeded in recapturing a substantial amount of ground at Kharkiv and eventually in Kherson. That then led to a period of stalemate through the winter. Russian offensives at Bakhmut and elsewhere largely failed, and we're heading now into a new season where there will probably be a renewed Ukrainian offensive to try and cut the land bridge to Crimea, though it's hard to predict exactly where that offensive will go. The initial campaign the Russians mounted was misguided in a lot of ways, but nonetheless took a lot of ground before the Ukrainians regained their balance and halted it. We're headed to another round in this cycle where the Ukrainians will be on the attack, the Russians will be on the defense, and we'll see what happens. Current fighting is raging near the city of Bakhmut. Is this a critical battle in the war? At current troop levels, the Russians will eventually take Bakhmut. The Ukrainians have been reinforcing in an attempt to either delay or prevent that. If the Ukrainians do not reinforce or counterattack on the shoulders, then Bakhmut will eventually fall. The Russians have been making sustained but very slow and very expensive progress. So if that trend continues, then eventually they'll be in possession of the city. The city has modest 
military utility. It probably is not a gateway to other conquests in any meaningful way. If Bakhmut falls, there are defenses behind it that wouldn't produce some sort of breakthrough and exploitation that would lead to a large-scale change of territorial control. The main fight over it at the moment is twofold. One is it's taken on political symbolic significance, largely because Zelensky has chosen to give it that. The Ukrainians didn't have to raise the political salience of this fight in the way they have chosen to do. The same thing happened over Mariupol, which eventually fell. And nonetheless, Ukraine now views it as a heroic defense. The importance of holding Bakhmut, that if it falls, it will be regarded in the future as another heroic defense rather than as a sign that things are going badly, the political symbolism of it for both sides, really, including the Russians, who will doubtless trumpet this as a great victory. I mean, going back to Mariupol, right? Putin just visited the city. The Russians are on the lookout for political symbolism where they can get it, too. The other issue is the attrition consequences of the fight. It's in the Ukrainians' interest to let the Russians grind up huge numbers of troops in an attack on a militarily largely inconsequential city, because that will reduce the Russians' ability to respond to the upcoming counteroffensive when it happens. Holding it, even if it's not militarily important, is valuable in the long run because it's changing the troop strength in the theater in Ukraine's favor. That argument was probably more persuasive a month ago than it is now. The Russians, sensibly enough, have been emphasizing the northern and southern flanks of the city in an attempt to cut the supply line into it. And it creates a situation where they can take the city by starving it and potentially encircle a couple of brigades of Ukrainian forces if Ukraine allows them to do this. Ukrainian military geography is profoundly influenced by mud. This part of the world has a mud season when the ice and the frost melt, and it becomes extremely difficult to operate heavy equipment off asphalt surface roads. We're in the middle of mud season now in Ukraine. What that means is that if Ukraine holds Bakhmut too long, if they gamble on this and stay longer than they need to, their ability to rapidly withdraw those forces is increasingly questionable as the few asphalt surface roads available become increasingly threatened. There are risks here for Ukraine in sticking this out too long, as opposed to just liquidating militarily inconsequential position and withdrawing. What will the upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive look like? The standard expectation in the chattering classes is that the major counteroffensive in spring-summer will be aimed at cutting the land bridge to Crimea. The Russians are investing very heavily in prepared defenses in that area. It's not going to be a trivial exercise to close the land bridge. You could imagine a feint to hold those reserves in position there and instead a main effort somewhere else. A black swan possibility that some people are throwing out lately is a counteroffensive on the flanks of Bakhmut. One of the advantages of counterattack as opposed to a major offensive is at the moment populated by Russian forces that are attacking, not defending, and therefore their positions aren't prepared in the way that they are at Zaporizhia and near Kharkiv. Who knows? How challenging is it for Ukraine to take back Crimea? Crimea will be a very tough nut to crack. There's a very narrow neck. 
that connects Crimea to mainland Ukraine, and much of that ground is marsh. So a ground offensive into Crimea across that neck would be exceptionally difficult. There will be an effort to isolate Crimea logistically. Not unlike the Kherson campaign of the fall, when it ultimately succeeded, because the Russians are highly dependent on just two bridges across the Dnipro River, and those were highly vulnerable, and as a result, Russian forces on the wrong side of the river were logistically starved, Crimea would probably work the same way. An effort to isolate the peninsula, followed by enough pressure to force the Russians to expend munitions, and then an expectation that the Russians would eventually withdraw voluntarily to avoid logistical starvation there. Crimea will be a very hard objective for Ukraine. Do you think Ukraine can win this war if the West provides the weapons to fight? The Ukrainians, if they are appropriately supplied, have structural advantages in the quality of their forces and in the number of their forces. It's not widely recognized that almost certainly Ukraine outnumbers Russia in the theater at the moment. So Ukraine has mobilized a very large military at this point, close to a million combatants. Russia is outnumbered in the theater, and Ukraine is being re-equipped with Western weapons, and Ukraine has fielded a better skilled, more proficient military. You expect a combatant like Ukraine to be able to grind out offensives and take ground. That doesn't mean there's going to be a sudden breakthrough and a collapse of the Russian position in Ukraine. Unless Russian morale breaks, that's very unlikely. To retake all of the ground Ukraine owned in January 2014 is a project of years, not weeks. Admiral James Stavridis, who spoke previously on what happens next, recently predicted that the Russians have a one in three chance of seizing Ukraine. He envisions a military operation where the Russians launch a simultaneous assault from the north and south, flanking the Ukrainian forces and then traveling to Kyiv. Do you agree with the admiral's estimated probability? This depends in part on whether Belarus enters the war and what Belarus is going to do, right? The northern pincer would almost certainly have to be out of Belarus. And so far, the Belarusians, sensibly enough, they don't want to be part of this war. It's plausible that Lukashenko's government could fall if he did that. A double pincer envelopment of the East is asking a lot of Belarus. The Russians so far have shown no ability to coordinate that kind of sweeping military offensive. This is a graduate-level military operation that the Admiral is talking about. There's not a lot of evidence that the Russians have the command effectiveness to coordinate it adequately and carry it out. It also puts the Russians operating on external lines and the Ukrainians are operating on internal lines. If the Ukrainians, who again outnumber the Russians in the theater of war, have the ability to maneuver reserves, they could plausibly halt one pincer, then turn to the other. It's a very demanding project. And so far, we haven't seen a lot of evidence that Russia is capable of coordinating offensive efforts on that scale. If the Russians start winning the war, will the U.S. escalate by sending in U.S. ground troops? It's hard to imagine U.S. ground forces being committed short of nuclear escalation by the Russians. Can Russia expand the battlefield to threaten Western weapon supply lines? The tyranny of distance is a big problem in logistics. 
And we're talking now about movements over huge distances. Ukraine is an enormous country. And Russia is not a military that's structured to logistically sustain long advances. They're heavily dependent on rail transport. And the kind of advances we're talking about now would require truck support beyond a railhead of literally hundreds of kilometers, especially as Ukraine is armed with longer distance surface-to-surface missiles that have so far already forced Russia to move its logistical depots and stockpiles further away so as to avoid having them be vulnerable to capabilities like HIMARS. Is there sufficient support in the West to provide weapons indefinitely? The Ukrainians' ability to sustain a conventional defense of the kind they're doing now is dependent on Western aid. Western aid depends on legislatures going along with this in multiple countries. The Republican Party in the United States is trending increasingly against support for Ukraine. One suspects that Putin's strategy for the war is mostly reliant on waiting this thing out until Republicans make continued U.S. support impossible domestically for the United States. It's unclear whether the current House of Representatives would support another aid bill for Ukraine. If Republicans win in the 2024 presidential cycle, it's very hard to imagine the United States continuing to support Ukraine on this scale. If that happens, the military situation on the ground changes a lot as Ukraine burns through its munitions. That's a very different military environment than the one we're looking at today. If I were Putin, I'd be playing for that. What happens next if U.S. military aid is cut back? Yeah, I mean, the implications for Ukraine would be very negative. Ukraine cannot sustain a conventional defense of the country without Western aid. I mean, they're burning through artillery ammunition at a rate that they'll never be able to sustain based on indigenous production. And artillery has been the most important casualty causer in this war, as it is in most wars. If the Ukrainians lose the firepower to defend dug-in positions, eventually the Russians will push them out of them. You can't defend even a well-prepared position without ammunition. What are the U.S. domestic political issues related to the Ukraine war? The political trends, especially among Republicans, are clear. But there's a traditional conservative wing of the Republican Party, led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, that's actively trying to prevent the Republican Party from going wholesale isolationist anti-Ukraine. And at the moment, if I had to put money on an outcome, it would be that McConnell's project will fail, but it's unknown where the Republican Congress is going to go. If it succeeds, then McConnell and Biden will own the war. The politics of this are up for grabs. I would like to see the president make a public address to the American people laying out the case for supporting Ukrainians. One is the moral case for supporting an innocent democratic victim of naked cross-border aggression. The second is prudential. Prior to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, he had engaged in successful military actions in Chechnya, Georgia, Crimea, and Syria, and in all likelihood, that chain of successful military adventures had something to do with his decision to launch an invasion in Ukraine. 
Putin has expansionist objectives that include countries that the United States has a treaty obligation to defend. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are NATO members who are part of the former Soviet Union and are clearly part of Vladimir Putin's ambitions for a reestablished Russian empire. Unlike Ukraine, which is not a treaty ally that we're obligated to defend, the next one could very well be. It's important that this kind of serial expansionism not continue because pretty soon it will continue into places where if we decide to opt out as Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and some other populist Republicans would prefer, we will end up reneging on treaty obligations that will have profound global implications for U.S. national security that go well beyond just Russia and Europe. I think there is both a moral and a prudential case for the United States to support Ukraine, but that case needs to be made in the public square. What happens if President Putin uses a nuclear weapon? If Putin decides to use nuclear weapons, the natural target would be fixed military installations within Ukraine, air bases, supply dumps, training centers, and so on. Probably the weapon employed would be burst at a fallout safe altitude. It would mostly be to signal to Ukraine and the United States that the stakes are high and growing, and that rather than risk New York City in a nuclear exchange with Russia, it would be better to play it safe, force Ukraine to the negotiating table, and so on. If that happened, it's very unlikely that the United States would simply back down. The U.S. would respond. It wouldn't do nothing. The response would probably be non-nuclear, and it would probably not involve ground forces. The usual expectation is the United States would respond with massive airstrikes against Russian infrastructure, and the United States would then become a full co-belligerent in the war. Do we back down and lose, or do we Russians continue to escalate? And the usual expectation is that they would continue to escalate, that they would expand the target set, use more nuclear weapons. The Americans would then eventually be forced to respond with further escalation, which would probably eventually be nuclear. This is what gets you to New York and Moscow being destroyed in a massive nuclear release. The escalatory stakes for the United States are serious here. If this war isn't handled well by everybody involved, it could plausibly produce a nuclear exchange that could literally end humanity. This is a serious peril. And among the reasons why Americans should care about what happens here is that if Putin wins in Ukraine, the same scenario is going to repeat in a place where it would be harder for us to back down. If we back down, it will repeat in another place that will be even harder for us to back down. Sooner or later, if Putin's agenda succeeds, the United States will get driven into this corner. And that's dangerous. As the what happens next China's are, I wonder, what is she telling Putin? My guess is that she is telling Putin, do not use nuclear weapons. She would have preferred that Putin not invade in the first place. The Chinese would like some kind of diplomatic solution to the war that doesn't look like defeat and failure for Russia, but that doesn't blow up the world either. 
Russia's interests and Xi's interests are not the same. Putin wants expansion. Xi probably does not. But Xi also doesn't want Russian humiliation and defeat. My guess is the outcome of this will be Chinese support for Russia as needed. Would a Chinese diplomatic resolution include material territorial concessions by Ukraine? Well, I mean, the Chinese can propose clever territorial partitions of Ukraine, and it won't go anywhere because Ukrainians won't buy it. The last poll I've seen, which was back in June, put Ukrainian opposition to territorial concessions of any kind at 89%, just off the charts in the polling biz. The odds that some clever Chinese proposal for limiting Russian gains gets any traction in Ukraine is about zero. What will the U.S. response be if China steps up military aid to Russia? Certainly the ongoing deterioration in U.S.-Chinese relations will be accelerated by this. In principle, the United States could sanction the Chinese for that assistance. That's a complicated process. I mean, hostility to China plays well domestically in the United States right now. It's more tolerable among American allies in the Pacific than it would have been 10 years ago. Most American allies in the Pacific want better relations between the U.S. and China and better bilateral relations between themselves and China because they need the Chinese market. So the degree to which the United States could get tough on China with sanctions that hurt China's other trading partners as well has limits because we need to maintain an alliance structure in the Pacific at the same time as we try and discourage the Chinese from supporting the Russians. There's a tightrope to be walked here. And I imagine what the Biden administration's instincts is to try and do as much as they can to dissuade the Chinese from helping Russia without alienating America's alliance partners in the Pacific in the process. Are drones a game changer, especially compared to the tank? This is just the latest iteration of a recurrent industry and the tank is dead argument. The use of cheap drones against tanks is greatly facilitated by the fact that most deployed air defenses are designed to deal with high-performance threats rather than low-performance threats. But that's a temporary situation. The survival rate for drones in Ukrainian service is about 10% right now. The Russians lose even more than the Ukrainians do because it's already been the case that air defenses are reorienting to dealing with the inexpensive, low-cost drone threat. The most cost-effective approach to dealing with inexpensive kamikaze drones is electronic warfare. It's also increasingly the case that tanks are armed with their own short-range, close-in anti-missile defenses. The Israeli trophy system is already deployed on large numbers of U.S. tanks. Systems of that kind typically use inexpensive short-range sensor systems, typically millimeter wave radars, to detect incoming assailants and direct counterfire against them to shoot down the incoming missile before it can strike the tank. Tanks, like anything else to be effective, have to be part of a combined arms mix. 
in which various kinds of equipment that have different strengths and weaknesses are brought together on the same battlefield to protect one another, that will surely continue to be necessary for tanks to survive. That combined arms mix will increasingly feature things that are designed to be very good against drones. Will the U.S. allow the Ukrainians to expand the war zone to include mainland Russia instead of just fighting and destroying Ukraine? The Russians are being granted a sanctuary in metropolitan Russia, largely because we want a sanctuary in Poland. If you expect the standard Clausewitzian escalatory dynamic to hold, then if we escalate, it's not likely to be the end of the game. What it does is confront the Russians then with a decision of fail or escalate, which gives them an incentive to escalate. Given that escalation could end up in the destruction of humanity, the end of that process is full release of both sides' strategic nuclear arsenal. Fairness has nothing to do with it. The right way to look at this is not, if it's fair for Russia to attack Kiev, then it must be fair for Ukraine to attack Moscow. That's a sub-optimization of this problem. The issue is bigger than Kiev and Moscow. And the escalatory stakes here are high, and Russia is respecting a sanctuary too. It's just that sanctuary isn't Ukraine, it's Ukraine's supporters in the West. There has been escalation in the war already. Putin escalated when he ordered a partial mobilization. Putin escalated when he launched a strategic bombing campaign against Ukrainian civilian energy infrastructure. So there's been a series of escalations on the Russian side. The West has escalated multiple times. We escalated when we started providing heavy artillery to the Ukrainians. We escalated when we then provided armored fighting vehicles to the Ukrainians. We escalated when we authorized Abrams tanks and Leopard 2s. Both sides have already been walking up the escalatory ladder. Russia has escalated at least four times. The three I mentioned and then the original invasion. Herman Kahn famously used the metaphor of a ladder with many rungs to understand escalation. And the first several of those rungs are conventional, not nuclear. The one at the top, on the other hand, is full thermonuclear release, which we don't want. And the view of the Biden administration almost certainly is slow the process down to give maximum time for domestic political pressure to act on Putin and to avoid setting up a situation where Putin thinks that there will be an immediate coup d'etat unless he escalates. So the Biden administration is walking up the escalatory ladder, but slowly and gradually to try and provide the maximum likelihood that Putin chooses not to go the next rung and instead back down. But there's plenty of escalation ongoing, and there's lots of risk that it could go quite a bit further. There is bipartisan support to provide Ukraine with old F-16s. President Biden remains opposed. Is this a good idea? I do agree with the president's decision. The problem is modern aerial warfare is a very complicated enterprise. Operating the systems in the airplane under pressure in a formation is where the rubber hits the road in training a fighter pilot. The electronics and the weapon systems in a modern aircraft are extraordinarily complicated. And success and failure increasingly depends on simultaneously using all of that equipment to its maximum potential in a high-stress, time-pressured environment. 
and coordinating your use of all those systems with four or five or six or 40 other aircraft so that everybody is maximizing the performance of precision munitions, minimizing communication signatures and radar signatures. That's what's hard. It's not learning to use the stick and the throttle and getting the airplane off the ground and getting the plane back on the ground. They could probably do that without any training at all. But if they're going to be used in a way that will be militarily consequential, it's learning to exploit the potential of the airplane with a bunch of other airplanes in a complicated tactical setting that's hard. Will the M1 Abrams tank make a material difference on the battlefield? In a modern Western military, the majority of people in uniform are not pulling triggers. They are repairing equipment. They're resupplying it with fuel and ammunition. They're doing engineering support. In the U.S. military, it typically takes roughly a half dozen tail personnel to support one trigger port. An M1 Abrams will become non-usable in a week. The resupply parts suite required to keep a fleet of Abrams tanks running runs in excess of a thousand separate items. The Abrams is famously logistics intensive. Partly that's because of design. The Abrams tank has a gas turbine engine. Most world tanks use diesel engines. Gas turbines are way less fuel efficient. In exchange, they get better acceleration. But in exchange for somewhat better acceleration, they have massive fuel requirements. Part of the logistic chain you need to establish is mechanics who know how to repair an M1 as opposed to a T-64 or a T-72. If this is a multi-year war, the Ukrainians are going to have to be re-equipped with Western gear. There's just a finite amount of Russian equipment that people other than Russia are willing to make available. Sooner or later, they're going to run out. So they're going to have to be re-equipped along Western lines eventually. The U.S. had a strong preference that Leopard 2s be provided rather than Abrams is because the Leopard 2 had a different design philosophy behind it. The designers of the Leopard 2 were not prepared to make the kind of logistical investment that Americans were. And as a result, for example, the Leo 2 has a diesel engine. It's less demanding of a fuel chain. And it's easier to repair in the field. The Germans weren't willing to provide Leopard 2s unless someone else was also providing tanks. When the Americans agreed to give Abrams to the Ukrainians, it was a token number of vehicles done in order to give the Germans top cover so they would provide Leos. Professor Biddle, how does this war end? Historically, herding stalemates tend to be environments that produce compromise settlements because when conditions in the battlefield are in flux and are changing rapidly, usually the side that's losing has an incentive to negotiate and the side that's winning does not because they think they can continue to improve their bargaining position and therefore they won't make concessions. So it would be preferable if we could get war termination prior to a multi-year herding stalemate. That depends on Vladimir Putin. This choice, to an unusual degree, rests on one person. If Vlad is unwilling to negotiate, the war continues. There's nothing Ukraine can do. There's nothing the United States can do. Germany, Britain, there's nothing anybody can do to end this war. Putin wants it to continue. 
And again, retaking every last square millimeter of Ukrainian ground doesn't end the war unless Putin decides to stop shooting. He can simply continue the strategic bombing campaign after Ukraine reaches the international border. The war will only end when Putin decides to end it. But there are reasons to worry that it may be later rather than sooner. What are you optimistic about in the Ukraine war? I'm optimistic that if funded, Ukraine will be able to preserve its independence and probably continue to gain ground. I think the worst plausible outcome, if adequately supported, is stalemate. The Ukrainians have outperformed everybody's expectations, and that's something that warrants celebration. Thanks to Stephen Biddle for joining us today and our intern Ryan Claffey for putting this podcast together. If you missed last week's show, check it out. Our guest was Dan Willingham, who's professor of cognitive psychology at the University of Virginia. He is the author of a new book entitled Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. Dan discussed strategies to improve your learning process, as well as observations on current teaching methods. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.